Что, ребята, как дела? Что, тиха украинская ночь, да, как говорил великий украинский писатель? Все ли у вас хорошо, ребятки? Нравятся ли вам наши байрактары? Hello and welcome to the Ukrainian Provcast, a series of conversations providing Western listeners with the background, context, and history to understand what Russia's war on Ukraine. I'm Sam Bach, and with me as always is my co-host Michael Williamson. Joining us again, again today, is Andrew Denary. Andrew is an assistant director at the Atlantic Council, and you can follow his work on Twitter at Andrew underscore Denary. Today's conversation is picking up from where we left off and expanding on uh, <clears throat> the previous episode that we did, Whose Fault Is It Anyway? In particular, we're going to be focusing more on the events from Ukraine's perspective. So to help us get into this, Mike, where should we be starting on the history here? Uh, well, the part where most people would uh, point to to start this conflict would be the Maidan Revolution of 2014. There's a lot of history between Ukraine and Russia that predates Maidan, but uh, it was the 2014 overthrow of the Yanukovych government that prompted Russia to annex Crimea and start its war in the so-called Donbass People's Republics. Um there's a lot of contention from the Russian side that this was a Western-backed, Western-financed, and Western-led uh, coup utilizing far-right elements uh, within Ukraine uh, to topple a democratically elected government, one that was predominantly supported by the Russian-speaking populations in the east and the south of the country. Um, and of course, the Western, excuse me, the Ukrainian perspective is a little bit different, as you might imagine. Um, and I know Andrew has plenty that he wants to talk about regarding Maidan. We, we, we were going back and forth a little bit, um, Andrew, about um, what may or may not have been coming out of the, uh, the Western camp in support of the, uh, the protesters. Like, there, there's one point of view that the protesters were simply being handed out, like, sandwiches and given a little bit of morale-boosting rah-rahs from uh, whoever it was that was visiting at the time. Um, but of course the Russians say that it was something much more sinister. Where, where do you fall on this? Yeah. I, thanks for having me on again, guys. Uh, this is good fun. Um, yeah, I think there's certainly the, the Kremlin propagated perspective. And then there's what we might call something, a narrative closer to reality and reality and really everything we know from Maidan is that, this was a popular protest born out of really frustration with this super corrupt um, and Russophilic uh, Yanukovych regime, Viktor Yanukovych. And the people, Ukrainians, were fed up. They protested in the streets, in Kyiv, elsewhere around the country. And U.S. diplomats did visit the protests in, in the winter of 2013-14. But... Yeah, we had Victoria Newland, who was a, a official at the State Department, literally handing out sandwiches to protesters and and giving them blankets because <laughs> it was Kiev in January, right? And this has kind of been seized on by Kremlin and Kremlin-controlled media as, oh, this is a U.S.-backed coup, when really this was a popular protest started by Ukrainians um, over frustration with their own government and U.S. diplomats kind of showed up to show support and to kind of survey the scene, really. This was not engineered in any way by uh, by the U.S. So again, we have 
narrative and reality. And those, especially when we talk about the Kremlin narrative and reality, those are two separate things. Now, what started these protests, if, if you'll allow me, actually, um, what started these protests was Yanukovych reneging on his word to bring Ukraine uh, more within the European Union economic sphere. There was a trade agreement that they were going to sign with the European Union, which was part and parcel of longstanding Ukrainian foreign policy as part of a shift generally towards the West. Um, and Moscow wasn't having that and invited Yanukovych to Moscow, whereupon the man received something like, what was it, $2 billion, I think. And then the next day he said, oops, can't do it. Can't do it anymore, guys. Uh, hands are totally tied. We're going to go with Moscow on this one. And th so they announced a plan to you know, enter into a different kind of cooperation agreement with the Russians. And of course, that's what prompted um, all the, the pro-European uh, protesters to gather in Maidan. And then things just escalated very quickly from there. Yeah, I think it's worth kind of just taking a step back and explaining why we decided to start here, because obviously the history of Russia and Ukraine is long and complex with tensions, um, you know, going back as far as time, really. But we are choosing to kind of start this episode at the 2014 Maidan, um, <clears throat> because we see this as really the starting place of the heightened tensions between Russia and Ukraine in the modern era that, like, you can trace the lineage of 2022 all the way back to 2014. And Andrew, I think you had um, a little bit more you kind of wanted to just lay out on Maidan before we uh, keep going. I can offer up to Maidan if that's useful for our for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. That's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Me, Maidan is this inflection point in Ukrainian-Russian relations. But we should remember, right, in 1991, right before the Soviet Union fell, these two countries were constituent republics of the Soviet Union. And so when... Independence happens in 1991. Ukrainians overwhelmingly vote to be independent. Russia, from the Soviet Union, Russia becomes its own independent state. And this is where you know, trajectories diverge again. And Ukraine is an independent country, like and like a lot of post-Soviet countries, goes in fits and starts in developing, um, but really does become a democratic country. Yes, there was corruption. Yes, there were... Um, Yes, there was corruption, I guess I would say, in the 90s and in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And there was this orange revolution in 2004 when really Russia tried to uh, falsify or help um, falsify a Ukrainian presidential election. Ukrainians, again, this was 10 years before Maidan, came to the streets in Kiev and peacefully ensured, kind of overturned these false results and ensured that there were was a fair kind of election. And in the, the 10 years between that and Maidan, we saw more democratic development, stunted in some places, imperfect in others, but democratic development nonetheless. And so Ukraine is on this European democratic free market trajectory when we get up to Maidan. And that's kind of in contrast to Russia, which at the time is, is going the other way and is becoming more authoritarian. So that's just a, a bit of background to set us up for Maidan right? And, and what we're going to talk about from 2014 on to 2022 today. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew talked a lot about the 2004 revolutions, um, Orange Revolution, but 
we're kind of glossing over that at this point because um, basically due to the effects, like 2004 did not lead to an invasion and annexation, whereas 2014 did. So, you know, if you're judging things by their effects and consequences, then it's kind of the logical uh, way to start history at 2014, not start history, but start um, this episode's history at 2014. So uh, with that kind of, I think we're going to just jump right into the invasion of Crimea, right? So the kind of first thing to understand is that there's been a lot of backpedaling of this narrative in the West, but it's unlike the 2020 inv- 2022 invasion, excuse me, there was no um, warning or forewarning by Russia with regards to the invasion of Crimea. This kind of was an opportunity that they took after the chaos of 2014 that they had the opportunity to take a st- geostrategically important place and just went for it. Like, it's not like you know, whether or not you agree with the Kremlin's motivations or rationale or anything, there was um, a kind of public announcement prior to the 2022 invasion that like, hey, listen, this is something we're going to do if we don't get immediate concessions. Uh, yeah, I think it's actually interesting. The Moscow's actions, just, just point of fact for 2022, uh, portended certainly this invasion. But right up until... Uh, February 24th, Kremlin officials were saying, we have no intention of invading Ukraine. We're just doing this. We're just moving troops within our own borders, right? And so <laughs> I think you're right, Sam, that that certainly, right, the buildup of troops on the borders was a pretty big signal, a blinking red light, even though Kremlin officials were like, oh, I swear there's no way we'll invade Ukraine. Right, well, I mean, I th- so, <clears throat> you know, the only thing I'd say to that is, Yes, obviously there was an official denial, but it did not take much to read between the lines between troop movements and Putin's, you know, now infamous article about the non-existence of Ukraine and the nationalistic um, sounds being made by Russia at this point. So on the one hand, obviously you're right. On the other hand, you know, it was much more, I feel like it was much more obvious than the Russian response to 2014. Yeah, right. And so, so I guess if we go to 2014, you're absolutely right. The Maidan protests really kick off. Um, Yanukovych's forces fire on protesters. Dozens are killed, but protesters are undeterred, and they continue to come out to the streets. Popular protests. Yanukovych flees to Russia. There's a new government in Kiev, and days later, Russia's quote-unquote little green men, these soldiers basically with out insignia, take government buildings in Crimea and do this sham referendum of, oh, who wants to be in Russia? We do, 80% of Crimeans. Um, and it's kind of this this engineered, as it were, annexation or to make it look like, oh, who's to say? Who's taking over government build- buildings? And these people want to be part of Russia. I think this is actually very important to emphasize because it's very... Uh, commonly heard in the West that the Crimeans overwhelmingly popularly voted to join Russia by the order of something like 90% of voters, right? Um, The reality is that it's very difficult to get accurate true numbers because Crimea was de facto annexed by the time that the referendum was actually put in place. Um, Russia both activated its pre-existing troop presence around its naval base that it had owned for, you know, centuries practically in the Black Sea, Um, but then also imported men at the same time 
Uh, and we know that they were imported because even at the time, like journalists were going around asking questions to these men with you know, the little green men that came in with unmarked uniforms, carrying Kalashnikovs and saying, we're with the you know local self-defense forces. Oh, that's cool. What street were you born on? Doesn't matter. It was close to here. Uh, would be the answer that you get. Um, so this was, yeah. So so this was, even though Crimea has been overwhelmingly Russian speaking and ethnically Russian for a long time, even though it's, I guess, more native to the Tatars in the region, um, it is worth mentioning that at the time when Ukraine voted for independence, even the oblast of Crimea voted, uh, plur, uh, excuse me, a plurality of those people voted for independence, something like 54% of them. Um, and Putin's Russia not so, known, again, I, I don't, not known for free and fair elections. We should say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so speaking of not free and fair elections, okay, so so they basically hijacked the government buildings in Crimea, uh, barricaded the police and the Ukrainian military, all of whom were majority loyal to Ukraine, um, in their buildings, um, and then held the referendums pretty much all at once. Uh, and the person who was responsible for this was a guy named Igor Gherkin. Uh, so Igor Gherkin was a Russian army veteran and former FSB agent. Um, he is now infamous in Ukraine for having basically orchestrated all the uprisings in both Crimea and the Donbass People's Republics. Um, and very similar things were attempted in other Russophone cities like Odessa and Kharkiv. Um, but the places at which Gherkin was present, they actually... Um, they actually broke out into rebellion. Um, so I, I don't know, Andrew, I think you and I were talking about this a little bit early, earlier. Um, I think you have the timeline a little bit more clearly than I do, but from my understanding, Gherkin was responsible for raising the guerrilla armies um, without which the separatists wouldn't have had any chance to win. Um, Gherkin himself has been quoted as saying, were it not for my involvement in Donetsk and Luhansk, those rebellions would have gone the same way as Kharkiv and Odessa. Now, whether that's just him puffing his chest or actually speaking some truth, difficult for me to say. Um, but I think I'll let you jump in. Well, yeah, but I mean, I th <clears throat> before Andrew does, I mean, I think the important thing to highlight on that point is whether or not his involvement was the de determinative factor or not. It's an announcement of his involvement, which you probably have to take at face value. And, you know, that's obviously going to shift the results. So, you know, whether or not it's chest pumping or not, it's still, um, you know, about as direct evidence as you can get of Russian involvement here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I think Gidkin is a really key figure because you're right. Um, wherever he shows up really in Ukraine, we see further Russian involvement. We see Russian military take Crimea, Led by Gyrkin, we see him show up in Donetsk and Luhansk, and those rebellions really are, you're right, led by Russian regular <laughs> he was, forces. He was also he was also in Chechnya and Transnistria and Bosnia right. all before yeah. that, so this is part of the man's yeah. playbook. So yeah. anyway, right, to, so Gyrkin shows up in Crimea, Donetsk and Luhansk, and really Russian security forces and troops lead these, what in some, time, in some ways look like People's rebellions in in Donetsk and Luhansk about being more closer closer to Russia, um, but they're really led by um, actual Russian soldiers, and this really blows up into a full blown war between Russia, its proxies, and Ukraine, and that kind of starts this 2014 war um, that has continued through the full scale invasion that we um, in February. Yeah, so I think that's um, a pretty good 
catch up on the history of to 2014, um, <clears throat> I kind of want to shift gears just a little bit and discuss the interregnum. Obviously, there's this huge gap, almost 10 years, between 2014 and 2022, and a lot occurred during that time. You know, Some of it's well-known, including uh, the modernization of Ukrainian military, which has been a decisive factor in them securing not so much, not victory outright, obviously, but a much stronger uh, strategic advantage than anyone could imagine. But the thing I want to focus on right now is Ukraine's reaction to Russia within that time period, because obviously a country's reaction to another country's invasion is going to be determinative. And also it's, it's the basis of some of the Kremlin's propaganda against Ukraine. Like, namely, one thing I really want to talk about is the anti-Russian language laws that took that occurred during this time, uh, which, again, the Kremlin has used as a partial predicate for the invasion. Like, oh, look, we we touched on this in previous episodes. Look, look, we are the defender of the Russian people, wherever they may be, including outside of our borders. We're going to go um, attack Ukraine in order to defend, you know, our people, our, our Russian language speakers, our Slavic people, etc. So, um, you know, you guys obviously were in the country um, since the laws were enacted. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners uh, a bit about that particularly, and then we can kind of expand the discussion into other topics similar. Sure. Well, the law in question, it's... So Ukraine for a very long time has had this tug back and forth between how much Russian they're going to allow into the public sphere. Um, There have been laws in place in Ukraine since the 90s that make Ukrainian the only official state language, so this was nothing new, and this was back when it was still effectively a Moscow satellite. Um, But more recently, there were measures taken that banned the use and the teaching of any minority language, I believe, except like English in Ukraine. I'm a little bit fuzzy on the specifics, but effectively it it banned Russian, also Hungarian, as a side effect. Russian could be taught as a foreign language, or or not the state language, but but instruction is primarily in Ukrainian, yeah. Sure, fair enough. Yeah, I I think you're, you're, like, yeah, the the faculty are supposed to speak um, pretty much exclusively in Ukrainian. I remember that was the case. And, and like this rule was like somewhat enforced because I, because Andrew, Andrew and I actually, just for context, we both were English language teacher volunteers in Peace Corps. And so we both served in Russophone areas and lived in these classrooms, right? Um, and in my classrooms, Russian language would sometimes get used by the teachers, uh, sometimes. Um, but if you had like a meeting with the superintendent of the school and everyone was present, yes, even those who weren't very comfortable with Ukrainian were attempting to speak Ukrainian. They didn't seem upset about it. Um, so, I don't know. Is there any, anything more specific you want to say about the law, Andrew? Because I, I don't know the precise clauses of like how the law was written, but I remember yeah, and, in general. And, and to kind of direct to kind of direct the question more. I mean, uh, again, this is one of the primary justifications for an invasion of an entire country. So, you know, let's take the Kremlin at face value on this. Like, how valid is that reasoning in terms of like, oh, you know, are the Russian speakers like Mike was saying? Oh, you know. Um, those who were native Russian speakers and uncomfortable speaking in Ukraine were forced Ukrainian were forced to speak in it, you know, in official capacities. Like, how how was the law taken and interpreted by the average citizen while you were there? So to be clear, right, there are there's kind of a small raft of language laws really that make the Ukrainian language the state language and um, kind of de-emphasize the use of Russian in official and in public life. Um, but that's and and I think there's we can have some interesting conversations on the the wisdom of those laws. But the reality is that language in Ukraine is just not really a big issue, besides 
for those people that make it an issue, right? In inside Ukraine, Russian speaker, like you could speak Russian wherever. We honestly spoke Russian at my school, right? And there was a Ukrainian speaking town next door and I lived in a Russian town. And like people were totally, there's no tension. People were totally fine switching back from one to the other or speaking one person in Ukrainian, one person in Russian. And so it's um, the claims about protecting Russian speakers from fascists in Kyiv that want to destroy the Russian people and language are like just totally false because there really just was not any real repression of Russian speakers or Russian language. You could speak Russian pretty much wherever you wanted um, outside of like a court, for example, or like, you know, the Verhovna Rada, right? The, the Ukrainian parliament. So all that to say, public yeah, life. Yeah, virtually everyone in my office yeah. in Kyiv was speaking yeah, exactly, Russian. Exactly. Yeah. Um, amid calls from the Kremlin that Russian speakers are being genocided and oppressed all over the country, they're attempting to wipe them out as a race, ethnicity, and linguistic group within the country. Uh, Peace Corps is sending people like me and Andrew there and literally teaching us Russian to get to help us get yeah, by. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I'd say those two anecdotes are a bit at odds with one another. Um, I'll let our experiences speak. Um, but I never really, like, the, the only thing that I ever encountered was speaking Russian to someone and they'd say, oh, why didn't you learn Ukrainian? Because maybe Ukrainian was very important to them. Um, and then I would hit them with, like, the couple of phrases that I knew and they would completely switch around. Uh, but for the most part, <laughs> but but it's but it's kind of understandable, right? Because, like, the Russians have a long history, as we hashed out previously on some episodes, of attempting to flatten the Ukrainian identity and their language and their customs, uh, going back centuries, right? So um, for them to continue to mostly turn the other cheek, I think is, you know, sp- as Andrew said, it's only an issue for people who choose to make it an issue. Um, even out in Lviv, that's really the only place that I ever encountered any really resistance. Uh, but people would be willing to switch to Russian if, if they trusted you, if they knew you. Um, but they are, I, I would say, like, they are conscious of what's happened to their culture in the past and they don't want... They, they do feel the need to push back against some of that russification. Yeah, so totally agree. And I think we've made clear there really is no threat to Russian speakers in Ukraine. But it is interesting if we want to talk about so certain like supplementary laws, right, about Ukrainian and Russian language. For example, uh, the 2021 law that um, people in the service industry had to speak Ukrainian to customers before speaking, you know, before switching to another language, basically. Yeah. Right. Which is obviously not, I think, I think it would be a stretch to say that that's why Putin invaded Ukraine. Right. But there's, there's, um, it's kind of a needless ticky tack thing that provides, that adds fuel to the fire to these narratives. And so I think not all of these, these laws were maybe necessary, right. You don't need to demand that service people speak Ukrainian, um, so there, there is like a few interesting nuances we can pick out here, but in general, there's like language is truly not an issue in Ukraine. So there's actually two other things during this interregnum period that I think is, are important to hit. Um, so beyond what the Ukrainians may or may not have done via legislation to the Russian speakers in their country, there was a war still going on where people in this supposedly breakaway region were being shelled and killed. Um, 
and the Russians love to tout that out as evidence of the Ukrainians attempting to, like, be, they're, they're, they're vindictive, they won't allow these democratically elected republics to break away. Um, again, we, we've already kind of touched on how a lot of this was engineered artificially by the Soviets, and th- those who were loyal to Ukraine were based... The Russians. <laughs> Excuse me, the Russians. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Hey, come on. They're, they're literally uh, hoisting, exactly. the Sov- the, hoisting the Soviet victory flag and, like, statues of Lenin over places that they've occupied so far. So, um, Yeah, and I mean, you know, and to be fair, I think it is worth pointing out that Russia itself, you know, either as the Soviet Union or onwards, hasn't necessarily always taken kindly to uh, regions wanting to democratically break away sure. from it. So, well, let's, well, so let's take a look at some <laughs> of their claims because, again, the Russian contention is that this is a fight against a coup, Western coup-backed regime um, that was favored majority by the people in the east and the south of the country that they are attempting to now, quote-unquote, liberate. Um, never mind the fact I think they would take the entire country had they, had they the ability. Um, but the fact is yes. that the administration that replaced Yanukovych is not the one that they're fighting right now. What they're fighting is Zelensky's government. And Zelensky was elected way after that with over 70% of the vote, right? So this isn't even the and same... 80% in places in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, this isn't even... Yeah, 80% even in some places in eastern Ukraine, exactly. Like, this isn't... Like, I lived in eastern Ukraine, and my family was extremely pro-Zelensky, like, loved his New Year's speech. I'll never forget that. Um, but yeah, like, this isn't even the same government that we're talking about, having been overthrown. So at this point, like, the, the Kremlin's claims of, you know, a coup just strike me as being not entirely, like, a good reason for, for doing what they're doing right now. Um, but beyond that, like, if, if we take, if we look at what happened with the actual Donbass war, because I'm sure a lot of people don't really understand the character of the war there. Some have described it as a frozen conflict. You know, that might offend some of the Ukrainians who are listening, because to them, a frozen conflict means Ukrainians are still dying every day, just in small numbers. Um, the war was very intense for, I'd say, like, the first two years were marked by ebbs and flows in the intensity of combat. But there was a lot of open combat. And the Russians were indeed importing men and material from day one of these wars in support of the separatists. Uh, Material in the form of like heavy weapons, artillery, um, being fired from across the border, sometimes from within the border, um, and sometimes from residential areas. And the thing about artillery is that there's artillery tracking radar that can be used to kind of pinpoint where that artillery shell came from so you can counterfire back. Um, The Russians would intentionally fire from residential areas to provoke the Ukrainians into then shelling residential areas, (laughs) trying to kill the artillery. Um, And then after a couple months of this, the Ukrainians kind of caught on to what was happening, and they actually completely stopped doing that. They stopped retaliating, retaliating heavy artillery on heavy artillery. Um, But the Russians continued to tout that out. And then, of course, staged a couple false flag attacks of their own to make it look like the Ukrainians were mercilessly shelling civilian areas. Um, leading, Leading up to this conflict, even, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but there were lots of false flag attacks that didn't get a whole lot of attention in the West because, well, that's exactly what they were. Uh, there was one in particular that I saw of a car bomb that went off outside. I think it was the Donetsk, like, gov- main government building, whatever it was, in the main square, right? Um, and there were two bodies up in the car. And Bellingcat took a look, Bellingcat being that, like, open source intelligence god on the internet you guys might be familiar with. He took a look at the cadavers and saw that there were scalpel lines, like, like incision lines along the scalps, indicating that these had been just like corpses that they dragged out of a morgue that had already had autopsies done on them, and they just like imported them into the uh, like the flaming wreckage of this car to make it look like they had been occupied at the time. 
Yeah. So to take a step back and Andrew, I'm going to let you jump in in a second. I think it's the, the point here being for everything that Mike said, that there has been kind of a um, continuous Russian playbook throughout this whole time, which is to intentionally provoke. And, you know, you might remember in the lead up to the 2022 invasion that the U.S. actually released a lot of intelligence detailing, like, listen, you know, Russia's expected to, um, you know, draw a provocation here and, you know, use that as a justification for the invasion. And it, you know, it, it looks like the only reason they didn't do that is because intelligence was released detailing their plan. So um, the, you know, really looking for provocation, like the metaphorical getting in someone's face, like, hit me, hit me, hit me, won't you hit me, blah, 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 like, you know, that sort of thing. Um kind of has been consistent throughout. Uh, Andrew, you wanted to, you know, I know, I'm sure you wanted to contribute to that. Yeah, no, I, I just think, to I give think a that's quick an recap. important bit um, to add there. I think if we want to talk about, give our listeners a sense of what else was happening kind of domestic policy-wise in Ukraine between 2014 and 2022, Sam touched on it, and I think this is a really good point, is Ukraine's military modernized pretty rapidly. Um they had to kick out all kinds of, um, you know, Soviet-era commanders, uh, procedures, structures, institutions, and really make it into the, well, I mean, let's be frank, like, this is a modern, effective fighting force. Yes, exactly. It's really spectacular what's going um, on. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, worth, worth, worth reiterating what people's mindsets were four months ago or something where, you know, the, the, by far the popular consensus was that Russia was going to basically succeed in a blitzkrieg and take Kiev within a week, you know, and obviously that's completely stalled out to the point where, you know, at least as we're recording this at the end of April, their objectives have been significantly curtailed, like pub, as publicly stated, um, because of the sheer efficacy right, of no, Ukraine's force, that's, that's but continue, right. sorry. Um, and the other thing on the domestic side is, right, Ukraine is at war, right, from 2014 onward against a much bigger country, much bigger uh, neighbor with more resources at that point, a better military. And Ukraine, I think the Ukrainian government, I'll credit uh, the Poroshenko government, who was the, he was the president right after from 2014 to 2019 before Zelensky, for opening a lot of anti-corruption institutions and other institutions that put Ukraine on a more Western path. Because I think one thing that they don't get enough credit for is the Ukrainian government saw that in order to fight Russia, maintain our independence, and to be more secure, we need to be stronger at home, which means less graft, more democracy, and a stronger economy. And they made significant moves in that direction. And so, you know, these are domestic policy initiatives, but these do, and I think we're seeing this borne out today, these have strengthened Ukrainian society. And that's really been the bulwark against the Russian invasion is, is the strength and cohesion of Ukrainian society. Yeah. And just to pull it to the military dimension again for one second, I think the, I mean, obviously the efficacy is obvious um, with like showing how Ukraine's defend, but it's defended itself, but it's worth comparing that to Russia, where, you know, there has been all these allegations of uh, <clears throat> everyone in the reporting structure of the military basically lying to Putin, you know, saying, oh, things are going so much better than they are, like overstating the military preparedness, corruption, inability to, uh, you know, engage supply lines, all these sorts of stuff that Ukraine obviously is, you know, if you sort of take 
um, Ukraine and Russia starting at roughly the same point from 20 years ago with regards to their military, you can see the effect that a modernization, westernization, anti-corruption, improving efficacy, like all these things have had with Ukraine and the lack of which is obvious within the Russian yeah, just uh, context. One example to illustrate this, we talked to, um, at the Atlantic Council, we talked to Ukrainian military experts and they tell us <laughs> um, that right, Ukrainian commanders will look at, this was in the first month of the war, right? Uh, Russian installations kind of bearing down on, on roads toward Kiev and the northern part of the country. But they were doing, uh, their formations were Soviet military formations. And the Ukrainians were like, oh, we know exactly what they're doing here. That's where the general is, right? And they would bomb the tank or the car. <laughs> that, and, and you remember, like, there were a handful of Russian generals and major generals that were killed in the first six weeks of this war. Oh my God, it's been a, yeah, it's been a bloodbath for the top command. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and another reason for that is Russian soldiers are so poorly trained that they need to be micromanaged basically from the front by these commanders. Um, but I think that's just a really illustrative example of the Ukrainian military and society has modernized in a lot of ways, and Russian military especially has consciously chosen not to. Mike, we've been talking a lot about military and you haven't said anything, and I know you you probably have some thoughts, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, plenty. I mean, the, the focus of this episode is, of course, whose fault is this? So I don't want to nerd out too hard on the specifics of the Ukrainian military. We've been nerding out. We'll give you a minute, we'll give you a minute well, to nerd out. I, I mean, I mean, the Russians are struggling as much as they are. A, all these assassinations of top generals is also coinciding unsurprisingly, with an unprecedented level of intelligence sharing from the United States to NATO, excuse me, to Ukraine. Um, beyond that, to what Andrew was saying, like these soldiers have to be micromanaged at the from the top levels down, it's because Russia has never bothered to implement a more modernized, like non-commissioned officer corps. So whereas the U.S. military and now the Ukrainian military in particular uh, have learned how to decentralize their command structures and empower junior level officers to take the initiative and make shot calls on the battlefield and flank here, do this, you know, attack here, set up an ambush there. When, you know, in the lack of orders, go and find something to attack, that kind of mindset, the Russians don't have that. They have to be told when and where to go unless they are, you know, the cream of the crop in the SVD or the VDV. And the Russians kind of burnt all their fuel on that in the first couple hours of the war. You know, if you are one of the top VDV paratroopers, you probably got sent into Hostomel Airport uh, on the first night with no support in contested airspace uh, and left with no resupply, and then you got run out by a bunch of territorial militia, essentially, um, if not killed outright. Um, so yeah, it has been pretty startle uh, startling, the difference in the Ukrainian military now versus 2014, and that actually does bring me to another thought that I've had on this. Um, of course, we have that uh, Dudayev quote at the beginning of the episode, which outlines the fact that no one actually ever wanted to be in any kind of joint venture with the Russians, not militarily, not economically, or any other sort of way, in places where it wasn't entirely coerced. Um, so I want to I like actually step back and look at this for a second, because a lot of people out there are putting the blame again on NATO and the U.S., and there's plenty that we can say about that. Um, but the fact... And we will get we will say about that. Again sure, we, second, we can talk but, about more about that if you want. But yeah. I mean, the fact is that all of Russia's relationships, all of its close quote unquote brotherly relationships that it has with former Soviet partners, are held together by the threat of coercion. 
um, recently, um, the, I believe, the, let's see if I can get this right, the husband of Putin's cheap propagandist, who happens to be like some lady up in the Kremlin, um, he put out this, yeah, he put out this social media video with this, this, this snarling attack against the Kazakhstanis because they canceled their May 9th Victory Day parade, you know, as a kind of soft condemnation of what's happening in Ukraine right now. You may recall earlier this summer that the, the Russians sent troops in to help quash the uh, the protests that were going on against the current Kazakh government. Um, and the dude basically threatened to do exactly to Kazakhstan what they're doing to Ukraine on, like, quote-unquote, the same level as what's happening over there, all, like, with this, like, really sinister smile on his face. Like, he really seemed to enjoy... Uh, doing this. Uh, even Belarus, who we often think of as being the steadfast Kremlin ally um, that's even hosting their troops as we speak, is really more in that position because you know Lukashenko simply can't get support for his regime in the European Union. If he could break away from the... Because, because he's, he's a, dictator. a dictator. And if he could you know theoretically keep his position without the Russians backing him, I'm sure he'd be thrilled to do so. They have been involved in several trade wars with one another. Look up the Milk War, if you don't believe me. Um, Lukashenko himself has spearheaded initiatives to basically cast Russian language out of certain spheres of society and, you know, re-emphasize the role of Belarusian, making that the official language, making that the language in schools. Um, I'm not totally current on where that stands, but basically at... Yeah, no, but... I know, so I was just going to say, I mean, like, to put a fine point on it, like, you said it yourself, and just worth reiterating, nobody really wants to be Russia's friend. Like, Belarus, Kazakhstan, you think of these countries as... (laughs) <laughs> so close to Russia's orbit that they're like, you know, in the atmosphere basically. And, uh, in <clears throat> like, even them, like they're, they're, they have very tepid support for the war in Ukraine. The fact that Belarus, especially, which I think almost everyone in the West thinks of as essentially an extension of Russia, which is handy as, you know, Russia's in its name, Belarus, white Russia. Um, like if even they are not willing to commit troops to this conflict, that goes to show you how little support there is, even for the, the countries that you would expect to have that support for Russia. So to shift gears kind of entirely, there's one topic that we have not really got into uh, today that we've we were alluding to and we discussed kind of in the last episode, but it's worth really diving into more. And again, and that is, is Ukraine's westward drift in some sense responsible for the war in Ukraine today? And to kind of set up what I'm talking about, we we were all discussing this analogy, so I'm just going to go ahead and run with it, is you are walking home, you know, from a theater, an event, whatever, in a dark alley that's known for crime and you decide to go there. It's a shortcut. You're wearing excessive jewelry. You're flashing your cash um, and you get mugged. Where does the locus of responsibility lie? Is it your fault as a law abiding citizen who's doing nothing wrong, but is perhaps making an imprudent choice by doing this? Or is it the evil thug who robs you and takes your money? And the, to kind of set up both sides, it's like, on the one side, you're doing obviously you're doing nothing wrong, but that's imprudent for you to make such an action. And on the other hand, there is evil in this world. So how much do we discount that evil and say, you know, essentially it's a victim blaming argument or not? But it it kind of carries a lot of weight within the context of Ukraine. Yeah, and so Russia. I fall on we blame on the on the blame the mugger side, I guess, um, and especially in the case of Ukraine because. The Ukraine's westward drift, as it were, or, or Ukraine's kind of modernizing um, drive, westward, uh, westward shift in, in the last eight years, has also been its method of defending itself 
from Russia. We should remember that before Crimea, uh, before Russia took Crimea, Ukraine in its constitution was neutral to NATO and to Russia. And it was only after Russia invaded Ukraine um, in Donbass and annexed Crimea that Ukraine changed its constitution to say we would like to, um, our goal essentially is NATO, is NATO membership. So, yeah. So the one, the one thing I'd push back on that is, you know, constitutions can say whatever constitutions say and whatever it officially, you know, said with regards to neutrality, I think is distinct from what's obvious to anyone observing Ukraine, which was an obvious westward shift. Like, you know, in, in some, I mean, I don't think you can look at its history prior to then and say, oh, it was neutral. It was doing a perfect job balancing itself as a buffer state between the EU and Russia. Yeah, I mean, so in a lot of ways, I almost feel like this is the wrong question to ask. Um, it almost assumes as if Ukraine was treating its buffer state status as the highest goal, and it clearly was not. There were other there were other values in mind here, namely the preservation of their state, the continuation of Ukrainian culture and language, the ability to break away from the orbit of Moscow that they've been they felt like they've been under the yoke for hundreds of years at this point. Um, and, you know, I, I obviously, like, when people say, oh, well, there wouldn't be a war if Ukraine just surrendered. Well, yes, I guess that's true. And then what would happen to Ukraine uh, is, is sort of their way of looking at it. Yeah, they would, Ukraine would be, Ukraine would be Belarus. With no freedom, a dictator, a weak economy, and under the threat, under the, the thumb of Moscow and the Russian military. No, I mean, I, I completely agree. And to say that Ukraine's actions and desires are not laudable and morally righteous is not, is not the point that I'm making at all. And I, I agree, obviously, like, a free people have a right to determination. And there's a great John Locke quote uh, that I wrote down, um, which I don't have, so shit. Well, let me give you a little bit more of a tidbit on how I think here, because, uh, um, again, okay, so Ukraine wasn't exactly acting in a way to maximize its buffer state status. Um, because there were other motives at play. They could have just recognized Crimea. They could have recognized the Donbass. The reality is, like, you know, Zelensky had to play hard-nosed with domestic pop political reality in this country. He would not have remained president of Ukraine for very long if he had uh, capitulated those regions officially to the Russian Federation. Um, we can say whatever, think whatever we want to about that. Some in Ukraine were for accepting the status quo. Some were not. Uh, the majority were not. Um, but the fact is, like, Ukraine did not to the best of my knowledge, do anything major recently to provoke this attack. So, like, when I hear this analogy of a man walking home from the theater, you know, like Bruce Wayne's parents and the Joker with their jewelry hanging, with the jewelry hanging <laughs> out, I ask, like, what jewelry was Ukraine dangling out in the middle of the night besides just being Ukraine? Um, they made no fresh moves towards NATO. There was no, there was nothing like that. Like, Putin basically said, we're doing this now because we don't think we'll be able to do this in the future. This is very much, in my eyes, the Clausewitzian, you know, what caused the Peloponnesian War? You know, Spartan fear of rising Athenian power. What caused World War II? You know, the Allies, or excuse me, World War I is like the Allies' fear, the Entente's fear of rising German power. Uh, and in this case, Russia's fear is of rising Ukrainian power on its doorstep and its future inability to enforce its will within its borders. Yeah, but we should also make clear that, like, Ukraine poses zero threat to Russia. Again, like, reality and Kremlin narrative. 
right? Putin's whole whole thing is that this Nazi regime was threatening Russian speakers in Donbass, so Ukraine, so Russia had to intervene to take out the government, so Ukraine couldn't threaten Russian speakers in Donbass anymore, and and that's why we're doing this. But like, it, it's just not true, and, and 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 we've seen really zero evidence toward that. Yeah, so so I want to um, kind of agree with and then disagree with uh, both at the same time the point that Mike made about like where is the jewelry, and I think it's an excellent point. Like <clears throat> on the one hand. There wasn't really any. You're you're absolutely correct. There isn't, um, you know, anything that Ukraine was actively doing that was provocative, you know, in any in any sense. But on the other hand, if you are to look at things from like historical and geostrategic perspective, where you know Russia sees the EU and NATO as an adversary and one that inevitably will be in military conflict with again either cold or hot, then because of the geography of Europe, a EU or NATO right on Russia's borders was always going to be intolerable, uh, intolerable to Russia. And kind of based on that perspective, like even, and this gets back to like the, oh, well, you know, you can't just, no, the Ukrainians don't want to suffer under the Russian yoke. But like, if you look at it from there, the conflict is sort of always inevitable. So by its just existence, which is not a good justification, then yeah, that's like provocation enough for Russia, which is not a great argument, I agree, but it is it is there and do you want to throw it out there? I mean, you basically summed up the argument, right? It's any time the potential for a democratic country or a democratic regime, democratic government to replace the, the in-power regime on Russia's borders exists, they move in and, and attempt to squash that. So like we recapped in the last episode, this is the same thing that they did in places where NATO was nowhere near, places like Chechnya and Kazakhstan and Belarus. Um, I guess NATO technically borders Belarus, but still. Um, Transnistria in Moldova, like that area that's getting a lot of attention now, um, was incited, like the war in Moldova between Transnistria and Moldova was incited by Russian special forces as well. Igor Girkin was there. Um, So this is very much just... I, I, I just... I guess if I want to give this argument any kind of weight at all, it's like, yeah, I mean, to min- to minimize conflict with Russia would be to accept their shackles, essentially. Uh, and if you don't do that, they will fight you and they will continue to push and they've expressed willingness, public desire to do the same thing to the Baltics on TV. They're saying this, they're saying it about Poland. Um, and so I just, I'd ask like, where do you draw the line yeah, no, and I mean, I think we're mostly on the same page, but this is just such a powerful argument and one that I think really captures the popular imagination that it's worth really fleshing out. Like this, particularly for folks who maybe know less about the subject than uh, the enlightened people on this podcast, namely you guys, not me. But, um, you know, that is that is the kind of question that I think is in a lot of people's mind, which is, well, couldn't have Ukraine prevented this? Isn't it partially their fault? You know, weren't they being provocative? And whether or not that's true, it's nonetheless really worth digging into because that's a question on people's mind, I yeah. think. No, worth, worth digging into, um, if for no other reason than to reveal the the contradictions inherent in the argument. I mean, it's almost kind of a chicken and the egg argument because Russia's been doing things to Ukraine that Ukraine finds unacceptable, and it's been doing it for hundreds of years. And when Ukraine pushes back, Russia says, why are you being so provocative? <laughs> no, that's um, which again kind of ties into the point that we brought up just a little bit earlier, which is it is part of the Russian invasion playbook to 
take accelerated defense at anything and use that as a justification. So I think even though it's not quite the right way to put it, like an oversensitivity to these sorts of things is a reasonable way to frame it. Um, so with that, I think we're running a little bit, uh, you know, long into the episode. Either of you gentlemen have any final words? If not, I think it's high time we wrap this up. I found the uh, John Stuart Mill quote, which I just want to read briefly since I referenced it earlier, which is, war is an ugly thing, but it is not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of a moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth a war is much worse. So, you know, I think that is... That the Ukrainian spirit right now and the Ukrainian people are very much embodying that by literally sacrificing their lives for their freedom, something that at least listeners in the United States should take note of, given that is our founding history as well. Although the British were not anywhere near as bad as the you Russians. You should look so. up a percentage of Ukrainians who said that they'd be willing to fight and die for their country versus the Russians. BT dubs. Mm, I, I, I'm sure there is quite a difference. <laughs> All right, so with that, uh, we wanted to thank our listeners for tuning in to the fourth episode of the Ukrainian Provcast and say thank you again to Andrew, as always, for joining us. Uh, once again, you can follow Andrew's work on Twitter at, at Andrew Denieri. Mike and I will be back again with another episode soon. But in the meantime, keep up the fight. The Ukrainian Provcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Audio production by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.